August, everyone. Welcome to the end of summer. Welcome to the end of our summer with uh, Bergman series. This is Criterion Cast episode 175. My name is Scott and I. I'll be your host for this evening. We'll be looking at Ingmar Bergman's 1955 comedy, Smiles of a Summer Night. Here to join me for that discussion are Eric Devins. Eric, how's it going? Good. Glad to be back. Glad to have you. Uh, Trevor Barrett, uh, welcome aboard. Sounds like you had a last minute uh, rush to get home, but we're glad you're here. I've made it. I'm excited. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, David Blakesley. David, happy birthday. Yes, as a matter of fact, it's uh, the eve of my birthday. So, uh, you know, on top of everything else that's been going on, I'm in my little echoey basement. So if you hear a little extra rattling of the sound, it's because my carpeting is gone due to a recent flooding incident uh, you know, inspired by a tornado. So, yeah, not everything in summertime is just happy-go-lucky, la-di-da. It's... Uh, a time of storms and and uh, fresh uh, you know, I like of, the way you I like the way you phrase that a tornado inspired or a flood inspired <laughs> by a tornado. It's, yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. All kind of Just, feeding off one another in a very spiritual way. Yeah, a little a little chain of events, kind of like what we're going to be talking about tonight in uh, Bergman's great film. Just one thing leads to another. Very much indeed. So, uh, this was a big turning point in Bergman's career, which I'm sure we'll be discussing and. Addition to all its uh, effervescent charms along the way, but uh, first a quick introduction. This is spine number uh, 237. This was a fairly early release, and when they've lovingly upgraded the Blu-ray, then I think it looks fantastic, uh, and which Criterion describes as such. After 15 films that mostly received that received mostly local acclaim, the 1955 comedy Smiles of a Summer Night at last ushered in an international audience for Ingmar Bergman. In term- turn of the century, Sweden, four men and four women tend to navigate the laws of attraction. During a weekend in the country, the women collude to force the men's hands in matters of the heart, exposing their pretensions and insecurities along the way. Chock full of flirtatious propositions and sharp witticisms delivered by such Swedish screen legends as Gunnar Bjornstrand and Harriet Anderson, Smiles of a Summer Night is one of cinema's great erotic comedies. I've mentioned in past episodes of the show, uh, I will mention again, Ingmar Bergman is my favorite director of all time, but I wouldn't have necessarily known that when I first saw this. I first saw this when I was kind of making a concentrated effort to get into Bergman's films during the summer of 2007. Uh, and this was the first film because I watched. I kind of wanted to go through his Criterion entries in chronological order. And at the time, this was the earliest they had. Um, but at 108 minutes and sort of atypical of uh, Bergman's styles in a lot of way, I think this is one that I've come to love more over the years, the more I've kind of come to understand where he's coming from. There's so much of himself in this uh, kind of seemingly uh, archetypal kind of farcical situation. But along the way, he gets in so much, so many pathos and so many of the characters reflect so much of what he was going through at the time that I feel sort of autobiographical background is uh, necessary for anyone kind of approaching and uh, this film to kind of fully understand it, even though it was, you know, so loved and appreciated at the time, you know, I think the layers kind of unfold the more you, get to know Bergman's work. Uh, I stumbled a little in the introduction because I keep wanting to say uh, Eva Dahlbach's name in the introduction instead of Harriet Anderson as she plays such a prominent role in the film and kind of stands out to everybody who sees it uh, as kind of the main one of the main contributors to its uh, true success. And David, I know you really latched onto her when you wrote about this film for your Criterion Reflections entry. Uh, seeing oh, the film again, was she still the standout element to you? Oh, she's just luminous. I mean, she she really is like the the heart and soul of the film. Although there's there's a lot of heart and soul to go around, but she is uh, well, she's just the most uh, kind of. Uh, I, I, she's the wisest, uh, but she's also the most kind of acidically funny. 
uh, subversive character. She's, you know, incredibly gorgeous. And uh, I just lament that she, you know, while she was in a, several other Ingmar Bergman films, but she was just kind of on the cusp before his more notable you know, ensemble cast of, of uh, actors really emerged fully into their own. And, uh, you know, she, she continued to act after after this film. But, you know, the earlier stuff that she did with Bergman is, is not really available on disc, at least not conveniently in Criterion editions. But, yeah, I, I really uh, admired her performance and just can't get enough, you know. So, yeah, she's, a, she's a magnificent. Yeah, as with a lot of these kind of early to mid-period Bergman films, there's a great mixture of uh, cast members between people he's worked with a ton. Uh, like, at that point, really, Eva Dahlbeck, she'd been in several of his films and usually in very prominent roles. Uh, a lot of those films, actually, by the way, you can see on Hulu, listeners, if uh, you haven't already. And I'm sure they'll be moving over to Filmstruck as well, but uh, if you're not sure about making the Filmstruck jump, definitely get them while you can. You know, A Lesson in Love and Waiting Women, and these are really fun, interesting films. But her and Harriet Anderson and Gunnar Grunstrand were already, and even uh, actually, what's the name? Uh, Ock Friedel was kind of a frequent collaborator with Bergman during this period. Um, but I and think we get a little glimpse of B.B. Anderson towards the yeah, beginning, too. Yeah, the slightest glimpse. I always forget she's such a tiny role in this movie because I'm always like, oh, B.B. Anderson, I can't wait to see her. And then she's barely in it. Um, but I, the one to me who really stands out is, uh, I guess I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, Harl Kuhl, you think? as uh, Count uh, Malcolm, who's kind of the military figure and has this great uh, way of delivering lines. And, you know, sometimes with foreign language films, you're not really sure how much is you're getting from the delivery of a language you don't understand. But, you know, every one of his lines is so sharp and so uh, precise. And uh, he has a wonderful presence that Bergman would reuse later in uh, Fanny Alexander, even decades later, which I find rather touching that he kind of brought back this guy who barely used it all. Uh, but... Uh, Trevor, are there any cast members that really stand out to you in this film? Yes. Uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand, um, he was someone that I already loved because I started my Bergman journey with, with Winter Light, and he does such a wonderful job in there as the main character. But it was only when I watched him in Smiles of a Summer Night that he really became kind of one of my all-time favorite actors. You know, it just, I just I love the range that he portrays from this character to the one in winter light, you know, they're quite different, but also just, um, in this, in this film, as he plays, um, as he plays Friedrich Egerman, the, the attorney, I think he is funny in every scene. I think he does a great job, um, at the beginning of being kind of the one who can be condescending and pretty soon he's the one who's humiliated and he does so wonderful with all that. And he, he's, He's got this face that that registers just um, genuine surprise when things are happening throughout the throughout the film. Like, um, for example, when he meets a little boy named Friedrich, and just just his response to that moment um, that maybe we'll get into a little bit later. And then um, at the end, when he's playing a game of uh, Russian roulette, um, spinning the barrel, and uh, he, he's just he's just terrified in his face as it registers when there's just the, the click. Rather than an explosion, um, you know, there's so much tension there, and you can just feel it on him. And he, I, I think he, he, for me, he's the one who stands out. So I'm very, very glad to hear that um, 
you know, the, that David latched on to Ava Dahlbeck and that you um, latched on to Jarl Kuhl. Uh, it's it's it, because it does it is a nice testament to the cast and how many strong actors are coming together to do this. The question then remains, Arik, did you latch onto somebody different? <laughs> um, yes and no. Uh, so like uh, Trevor, I also thought that uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand did a phenomenal job, although for me, I was more connecting it to his role as the son in Wild Strawberries um, and uh, how that dynamic is very different than his role as sort of the father in, in this film. But I do want a, a shout out to the star of our previous uh entry summer with monica because i thought harriet anderson was incredible uh in this film um, better than i thought she was actually in summer with monica um i just thought her her petra the 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 sort of maid house servant for them was just just played off of the sun so perfectly uh at the end with the guy she kind of ends up with it was wonderful and she kind of provides sort of like the same comic relief that you get from the uh circus performers in which i think is bb anderson right in um yeah the seventh, seventh seal uh you get that from harry anderson here and she just she brings that same sort of uh sensuality that she has in somewhere with monica but but uh uses it in a very different uh way here so i just thought she was uh pretty standout for me but i agree with uh each of you in your assessments of uh the people that you chose as well i was uh, you know a huge fan of this film i really 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 liked it so I'm going to be pretty praiseworthy to everyone involved. Yeah, it's really hard to go wrong with the cast, and they play off each other so wonderfully. It's almost a shame that so little relatively of the film takes place with them all together. Uh, it's kind of towards the end. I always think they get to the uh, kind of retreat area, the great house in the country much sooner, but uh, yeah, once they do, it's a blast. That's my impression, too. I, as I watched it this time, and I think the last time I watched it, the same thing, I'm you know, all of a sudden an hour into the film and yeah, I they're just getting like... there. I thought the whole movie <laughs> took place there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a minor flaw, I think, in the in otherwise a very good film. But uh, Arik, you mentioned uh, Harry Anderson's sensuality and sensuality is certainly all over this film. You know, every character sort of enters it in some way uh, sexually frustrated. Uh, you know, Harriet Anderson, because she keeps trying to seduce various men in the household and they don't can't quite... Uh, bring it to themselves to get with her and uh Ola Jakobsen as uh Ann Ergerman I'm messing up my Swedish pronunciations even more than usual but oh well <laughs> uh we find out that she is in fact still a virgin despite the fact she's been married to uh Gunnar Bernstein's Frederick for uh, several years now uh, but he kind of in a way that I find slightly unbelievable it wants to keep her sort of uh pure in a way but I, I think it's kind of a commercial touch so we don't have the ickiness of her being with both the father and eventually the son um yeah but, it makes their elopement uh, a little bit more acceptable and but, yeah and the fact is she's still only 19 i guess if you look at uh, frederick as this kind of refined esthete he's allowing his his wife to ripen before he uh you know, finds his, his ultimate satisfaction in her. So he's, you know, a man of cultivated taste and, and uh, exquisite. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's horrible, but I, but you could sort of see that uh, subtext in there. But he plays with it. I love the beginning of the film when he's sitting there with his son and he knows his son is, you know, falling in love with his stepmom. And I love how he's just sitting there. Well, 
perhaps we should go take a nap before our, uh, you know, our night out tonight. And <laughs> oh, yeah, a- after song. tweaking him for his theological <laughs> studies, and uh, certainly this so, is too worldly for a man of God or whatever. Right. But it's a nice twist, you know, because you do expect that from him, even at the beginning of the film. And, you know, they go into the bedroom together and, they, they, you know, things do kind of start to heat up. And then it's only a little bit later that you find out that he doesn't, uh, that he hasn't uh, consummated the marriage. Um, uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like the touch. I, I'm not sure I see it just as a, um, a, a, a maneuver around creepiness. Because that's creepy anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I think that it, it definitely allows for all of the sexual tension to start just, you know, the, that you can feel at the beginning. Um, you know that the son is going through it because he can barely contain himself at the beginning. And then to find out, well, so is dad. You know, so is Gunnar Bjarnestrand. And um, and they, they really are not going to last much longer. Well, and and, and as a character, I think, there's something sort of inhibiting her. I mean, you know, she's 19 years old. You know, she was married to someone maybe a little bit more age appropriate. She might have consummated that marriage, but there's something about him that she's, you, know, you can sort of see in that nap scene. She's, she's kind of looking to yield. And as he's kind of, you know, fumbling yeah. around in his sleep, she's you can willing. sort of sense that she's willing, but there's just something holding her back. And so, yeah, do, there, I think there's think, multiple threads going on there. Yeah. Cause I, I, I wonder too, if it's him, because I like the scene where we find out that she actually proposed to him, uh, when she saw that he was broken after the death of his first wife, you know, she seems to be the one who has pursued it. And it almost seems like an excuse for him that he, he knows it's not particularly right what he has done, but he found himself in that situation and, and maybe a way of getting around that. He just, He's he will not initiate this act um, because, you know, he didn't even initiate the, the marriage necessarily. So I almost see that he's the one who's kind of um, I don't know. He's definitely paternalistic with her and sees his role almost more of a, of a father figure. And he, and he loves her, which is a, a great thread in this film of, you know, love and lust and um, romantic love, all kind of three different things. And how they how they all kind of play, and he he loves her, but he he doesn't seem to. Well, he's got a barrier up for sure, and maybe an appropriate barrier. Um, but I I saw the barrier more on his side than on than on hers. But um, but that he's kind of uh, you know putting it on her. Well, when they when he first enters the room, when uh, oh, and Anna and and uh, his son are he's the son is reading to her he says children you know <laughs> which is interesting that he would yeah. read his wife as children <laughs> I, I mean i definitely agree that's more on her than on him but he also kind of has that wall up with everybody i mean even with eva dahlbach who he's you know supposedly lightly pursuing he, he doesn't really seem to express like an active desire for her. he just feels more comfortable around her i think well he can't he can't sacrifice his his legal reputation is his status in society with getting with an actress. You know, that says it all, right? <laughs> True. So so he's a man very compromised by his social standing, his possessions, his prestige, uh, and he's unable to really follow the, the passions of his heart because he's got all these other angles that he's got to calculate, and that's kind of his fundamental problem right there. Which is in some ways where Bergman himself was at at the time, you know, having gone through a couple of relationships with much younger women and... Uh, kind of 
realizing, you know, I think you see this a bit in some of his other films at the time. Uh, what am I thinking? Oh, Sawdust and Tencel for sure. Uh, just kind of realizing that he's perhaps given up too much uh, in uh, abandoning a relationship with a contemporary to kind of pursue a more carnal desire, shall we say. Yeah, you said, Scott, at the at the beginning that this was sort of atypical for Bergman. I think I would disagree, although I think you would disagree too, in the sense that I think you were saying that it appears on the surface to be atypical right. for Bergman. Um, and I would definitely agree with that. In In my notes, there's a note early on that says, oh, this doesn't really feel like Bergman. And then several notes later, it's like, yep, feels like Bergman now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think a lot of the themes that uh, that he deals with in all of his in a lot of his films, you know, complicated family relationships and sort of meditations on life and death and 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 sort of the, the you know, the classic Bergman themes that I'm so drawn to, I know you're so drawn to as well, I think we all are, um, are very much present in this film. So while the the packaging is is interesting, it's like it's it's almost like the the parody film someone would make if they were trying to make a like an 80s sex farce Bergman style, but uh, obviously much much better than that description would suggest. But yeah, definitely full of all of those themes, and generally, aren't his films are tied into whatever was going on with him at the time, right? Yeah, and well, and John Simon kind of talks about that close divide in uh, the essay in the booklet, where he says, "Think of how close the tragic come." So the comic here, uh, you know, it's, they're very intertwined and there are moments here where Bergman sort of surrenders to the pathos of the situation. And there are so many times when it could veer off into complete tragedy, not the least of which is, of course, the Russian roulette scene at the end where it seems like the character is about to shoot one another to death over a, a woman. Uh, but he keeps kind of twisting the screwball structure into uh, Something, uh, I think, a little closer to what we expect from Bergman, you know, even the fact that they all leave with supposedly the right person, you know, they're still kind of full of their individual foibles and limitations. And at least I get the sense that this isn't the end of it. I can't remember which essay uh, addresses specifically, but especially Heinrich and uh, Ahn's financial situation will be pretty dire considering his uh, studies, you know, not exactly towards the financially lucrative way that... uh, Frederick has been uh, supporting on and more towards kind of a more pious, uh, more meager existence that the spiritual studies will lead uh, Heinrich. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think all the couples are going to struggle. Kind of David mentioned with the, um, Mate with uh, uh, Fred, Frederick and, and Desiree, the, you know, the societal struggles that they're going to have. It, it sort of drew, drew me, I have a, a note uh, in, my, in my notes that I think m- might be weird to, to people, but it, it, this sort of feels a little bit Wes Anderson-y to me in that same style where it's a comedy, but not really, right? Like, it's, it's not really... It, it's a comedy with a lot of anguish at its heart. You know? <laughs> exactly. It's a comedy that's really about pain. And I think... Uh, uh, and and, unf- and fulfillment and, and questions about life and things like that. And I find the same thing is true of Wes Anderson, who is another director that I love. Maybe that's a weird comparison, but I don't know. No, I can totally to see it. And in the same way, uh, the film uh, Smiles of Summer Night kind of holds on to its more like illustrious, uh, positive, you know, uh, exquisite moments like uh, Fried and Petra rising to meet the morning after a night filled with uh, sex and the <laughs> hay, you know, but because there's been so much anguish surrounding it, we recognize that even those moments are, you can't quite hold on to them. And that's, I think that knows that's a lot in Wes Anderson too. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yep. Uh, but Bergman did approach this pretty much as a, a comedy. He talks about kind of rewriting the script several times in an effort to kind of, as he put it, defend every line. 
uh, and he really wanted this to work as a commercial endeavor. One of the more famous stories surrounding its inception is that uh, Sven Spielman industry basically said, you know, if you bring us another tragedy, you can forget about it because his last few films have just not worked. I mean, he'd done comedies in the meantime, and he kind of uh, skips past that in recounting uh, his creation of this. But uh, he really did want to make something that could be viewed as a commercial enterprise, which is interesting then that it ended up being one of his longest films of the period, if not his longest of his career to that point. Um, but it does still satisfy so many of the audience desires of these incessantly clever lines. I mean, the first scene between uh, Malcolm, well, that's Malcolm's first scene at all, but the scene between him and Frederick is a blast of just like these kind of subtle uh, undermining one another, you know, do you think there will be a war? Well, of course not. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> and it's just suggestive enough to uh, heighten their uh, combativeness without bringing it to full fisticuffs, at least not before one of them can exit the room. Well, yeah, it's, it's a it's a very high-stakes war, but it's conducted with, with great subtlety. And, you know, I mean, you've got a, a lawyer versus a, a career military officer who's, a, you know, a very highly trained, you know, killing machine. And, and you're right, the, the barbs that they're kind of tossing back and forth and the absurdity of uh, Frederick in that, you know, lacy night shirt and the, the silly cap and the robe and everything is just uh, quite quite a riot just to, uh, you know, kind of see see the simmering tension there and not knowing exactly how this thing is going to, you know, how, how the tension is going to be released. But even, uh, and this is another way in which uh, Gunnar Bernstein is just wonderful in the film, willing to, at all turns, play kind of the fool, you know, even though he kind of has, has the upper hand in some of their witty repertoire, just the fact that he is standing there in the nightshirt and that he is so notably less of a, you know, archetypal man than his uh, counterpart uh, more than makes up for it. And that's something that Bjornstern would kind of return to. He was fine with being a little bit more pathetic than uh, the guys that Berkman would pair him with frequently. Yeah, yeah. All of his advantage, all of his privilege is kind of, you know, based on kind of a it's kind of a hollow shell. You know, he, he's the lawyer, but you never see him really practicing the law. He's just somehow landed in this extremely privileged state and he's got all the fine trappings but <laughs> when he's up for the challenge when he's you know has this you know he's alone with this beautiful woman in the still of the night uh, he's kind of snuck out on his wife there he's got you know the you know the, the perfect opportunity to to have a night of of pleasure with a woman that he, he at some level at least loves deep down but he can't quite bring himself to it then he's challenged by uh, this uh you know this this commanding alpha male, and he just <laughs> kind of withers up. You know, I mean, he recognizes. You know, he's met more than met his match. You know, the the little knife toss there is just a <laughs> brilliant kind of uh, you know step up and uh, show me what you got moment there. So yeah, very 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 funny stuff. I I like how um, she he's the one still that that uh, the actress loves. You know, she he's the one she wants to. Um, to be with and, and kind of fight for. Uh, she doesn't want the archetypal male. She doesn't. She doesn't really want uh, the count. Uh, she wants this more, more flawed and and much more vulnerable person who does fight for her, or at least you know tries a little bit. He, he's he, he's kind of pushed through the motions a little bit. And um, I, I like that he's the one that, that she wants to get with. And maybe because I 
probably am more like him than any of the other guys. In, <laughs> in, yeah, in don't a, you have some I connection had, with practicing the law? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just go to the office too. Imagine everyone talks about me and my my you know <laughs> child bride when I when I leave, and <laughs> so, so no, I can't relate quite quite all the way with him. Um, but she, but uh, you know, as far as being caught caught in uh, in in situations where you realize uh, I am not really up for this, <laughs> I related yeah. to that. <laughs> yeah, and Desiree just wants him to make that move and and to sort of you know uh, show the initiative, and he's just kind of hemming and hawing there, and so and you know she doesn't want to force it, she doesn't want to just come on, and and she she's making it known that she's available, but she also understands. You know his hesitations, even though she, you know, probably wishes it were quite different than that. So all I was going to say earlier was that I wanted to not forget to um, mention how great, uh, and I'm also not good at pronouncing Swedish names particularly, but Margit Karkvist, Charlotte Malcolm, the wife of the count. Uh, I thought she also did a phenomenally uh, good job in her in her role, starting out as sort of a poisonous character. Uh, you know, doing the the bidding of her husband and then sort of admitting that and kind of falling into that. And then especially when they all get together at the end in the ensemble portion of the film, I thought she was absolutely wonderful, especially the way she played off as well with uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand. Uh, she was she was just a, a very important character for me as well. Well, what I really like about her performance, and you get this right from the start, is that she at first kind of presents herself as similarly kind of walled off and... Uh, distance and kind of cold as a Malcolm can be. And, you know, he freely admits that he's having an affair around her. And, you know, you get the sense that ideally his marriage, he would just be completely honest and they would just be okay with that. But you can tell just by her expression that it's kind of a, a put on for her and that she's had to kind of build up this persona to continue living with this guy, um, which kind of makes their end of the story tragic in its own way. You know, they're the only couple that remains the couple by the end of the film, but, uh, well, but she gets what she wants, ostensibly. In a sense, yeah. But, you, you know, that's kind of the tragedy is that is that all she wants, you know? I mean, he's going to find some other woman to dally around with by the end of it. Yeah, as soon as his, uh, you know, yeah. kind of conquest is, is reestablished because now he's jealous of her because he sees that other men are attracted to her. So now he's got to go ahead and assert himself. But once that's settled, <laughs> off he goes trotting again, yeah. Well, again, it puts the, the their relationship in the same category as basically everyone else's, with the possible exception of maybe Harriet Anderson really found love, although you more feel like she just found the first guy who chased her. But uh, each couple, like we said, has does not. It's not a, a really a fairy tale ending for anyone. It's just an appropriate ending, which is very different. Yeah, for sure. It, and to an extent, a lot of them kind of get what they deserve, but not what will bring them anything really lasting. I mean, because, you know, I, I like that with uh, uh, with uh, Freed and Petra, um, they, they get together and she demands that he uh, marry her. And he's like, oh, I, I said that an hour ago, but it's, you know. That <laughs> Things were then. different this an hour now. ago, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and they certainly will be again. You know, she's going to hound him. She's going to get what she wants, um, probably. But you can kind of see them in a few years being quite a different uh, couple. And even with the, the youngsters, you know, with uh, Anne and, um, and Heinrich, uh, they're both so immature in so many ways that it's hard to believe that they're going to really be happy together. They just kind of get their 
their uh, boiling lust out of the way. It's kind of a um, summer with Monica reprise if you if you think about it. Those two just yeah. kind of scampering off on the spur of they the went moment. To the boat, <laughs> exactly <laughs> out to the out to the rocky shores. You know. Well, and he totally resembles so many of Bergman's early kind of angry young man or frustrated young uh-huh. man, uh, and we've seen how wrong their relationships went. So that's another instance where. Some familiarity with Bergman definitely helps kind of flesh out that character type. Yeah, and, and perhaps the only one that I can think of that maybe they do get something that will last is Friedrich and Desiree. I don't know. They, they've been together before, and they've been together for a long time, and maybe they even have a child together. It seems like once they're able to break down some of the barriers, they actually might um, be able to figure it out. But the problem is, once he gets back to town... Uh, you know, she's still an actress. He's still going to be careful about his his uh, legal practice. That's not really going away either. So it really is like this smiles of a summer night. It's it's a night, guys. <laughs> you have your fun. Um, and like many of Bergman's movies, this night is going to be over. And we do end with a nice little uh, glimpse at the sun, the dawn, you know, with uh, Fried and Petra out there waking up in the hay and just kind of, uh, you know, greeting the morning. And it's 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 jubilant. But uh, but there's definitely the sense that if, if you're looking for it, I guess it doesn't necessarily make it explicit. But but, uh, you know, this is this is going to pass too. And we, we've talked about that with each of the last two films, these kind of idols that that move move away. And this one. Um, at least Bergman isn't making it explicit. Uh, he's kind of letting everybody at the end just live in their rapture for a little bit mo- longer. You know, um, Ozu is more specific in the naming of his films in this way, right? You know, each film or a lot of his films named after the period of the year, which ties into sort of the period of the people in the film in a lot of ways, right? Late autumn, autumn, afternoon, things like that. And I feel like all three of these films, of course, called Summer Something, Right. Uh, thereby sort of enclosing that idea, even in the title, which I think is, it, you're absolutely right, that each represents a, a, a summer feeling where it's like anything's possible, but fall is coming, especially in Sweden. Yeah, no kidding. And that's exactly what I was going to mention is the once again, the brevity of summer that we've touched on each of these episodes. And that's especially accentuated when it's just a night, you know, and the other two films have kind of had the whole season for better or worse. Uh, but here you just get the one pleasant night and the suggestion of what's to come. But they do hold on once again, uh, Bergman and his cinematographer, Gunnar Fischer hold on to that night so beautifully. And even like I said, that first viewing, I didn't totally get into the film when I first saw it, but that moment when Petra and Freed wake up to the morning, there's really nothing better than that. It makes such a perfect cover, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Big time. (laughs) And I think that's kind of the essence of romantic comedy, not, not in the kind of, the, the generic way that it's sort of developed in popular entertainment, but you know, true romantic company comedy going all the way back to Shakespeare and even maybe earlier playwrights, there is this kind of this, uh, there's a futility and there's kind of a, a vanity, but, but there is something beautiful and touching about trying to capture those, those moments of, of romance, of, of, of joyful, sometimes erotic, sometimes it's just an emotional fulfillment that, you know, is, is just, you know, too loaded with 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 emotion, and and it's a temporary thing. But when you have it, when you experience it, or even if you spend portions of your life recollecting those those um, peak moments and experiences, uh, 
that's what that's what these kind of stories capture and i think that's that's one of the things that is is quite winsome about this film is you know you've got these kind of you know four men four women each of them sort of archetypes uh, that we ourselves may end up kind of enacting to some level even if it's not on the overt level where you know you're you know you're out there for the world to see but you're still feeling it inside you know that you know whether you're that bold you know conquering uh macho guy or or the woman or or you know, the partner who's in a in a relationship where you're just kind of grinding it out because the person you love is kind of caught up in some kind of you know delusion or conceit and you're just sort of waiting for him to snap out of it you know there's there's just so much that we can i think relate to in these characters uh but that sort of coming together in that peak moment of a of a you know of a, of a of a summer's evening like that and and with all the with all the circumstances lined up to where we're, our hearts are just kind of exposed not only to the people around us but even to ourselves uh, that's what Bergman's captured here and I think it was his his life experience um his almost desperate his desperation both on the um relationship side in his private life and also his uh, artistic and professional side he was really in danger of losing the privilege that he'd worked so hard to attain of making movies and he you know he he didn't just sell out he did something that had a commercial angle to it but it was uh you know quite quite brilliantly executed and uh, that really did kind of open the door for him to you know for his next film the seventh seal which we've already referenced a couple times uh you know, and of course, everything just flowed from there. So, in terms of importance to Bergman, I mean, this might be the linchpin that you know, if it had not worked out the way it did, how much great art we would have been deprived of uh, afterwards. Yeah, that's very true. And I have to, of course, relate the famous story of how Bergman heard of the acclaim at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, where he says, uh, "Quote," and I'm quoting here, so excuse the language. Uh, <laughs> I was sitting in the shit house reading the papers, and then I read, "Swedish film gets prize at Cannes. Swedish film causes sensation, or something of that sort." What the devil film can that be? I wondered when I saw it with smiles of a summer night. I couldn't believe my eyes. Uh, yeah, without his knowing, uh, Svensk had submitted the film to the festival and. Uh, the acclaim came rushing in, although even in the 1950s, there was a significant backlash uh, back in Sweden. Uh, one of the critics there said, I am ashamed of having seen it. Uh, <laughs> what? Because of its prurience yeah. or something like that? Yeah, yeah it was uh, felt to be a little too carnal and a little probably too witty in terms of the dialogue construction and all that. And yeah, just a little too uh, ostentatious, I guess. Too for the... witty, man. Imagine yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pandering to public taste, this kind of lowbrow, yeah, exactly. you know, sellout type of stuff. So, yeah, if anyone thinks that film culture now is uh, just full of, uh, you know, contrarian takes and all that, know that this was always with us and <laughs> it's just unavoidable, even back in the slower moving 1950s. Uh, but, yeah, this supposedly he never had trouble finding financing for a film after that, even though I've heard that he kind of had some financial difficulty with Cries and Whispers and uh, a couple other films. Uh, but it makes a good story anyway. And this certainly uh, sort of caused an onslaught of great Bergman films, as David mentioned. Uh, and I, I, like I said, with the cast, this kind of represents a turning point for him. You know, I, I don't think Eva Dahlback would be in another one of his films. Uh, Harriet Anderson, of course, would, but uh, a little bit more sparingly. B.B. Uh, Anderson was kind of just coming up. And this was one of the, his last collaborations with Ock uh, Fordell. And uh, he would even start to use music uh, more sparingly. And we get this great, very buoyant, I think, score by Eric Nordgren, uh, who once again employs the kind of 
what would we say that is like kind of a harp kind of music to kind of transition between scenes kind of flowing string instrument we hear what do you guys think well you know one of the things that i think struck me as boy this doesn't feel like a bergman film at the very beginning was that little jaunty sort of 1950s sitcom style of music when when uh when when uh, friedrich is walking out of his office and down the street and there's that nice little montage of him kind of strolling through the town it's just like this little i mean it sounds like it could have been like out of leave it to beaver or something like that from that time and the music becomes a lot more subtle as it goes but i think that was one of the things that really struck me is just the 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 vibe and the atmosphere other than sort of the ornate period settings you know didn't strike me as typically bergman but i think the music was used to that effect to, to really set that comic tone which you know, I guess, you know, like I say, there were some of those earlier films with Eva Dahlbeck and maybe some others. Was it like All These Women and Lesson in Love? Those are a little bit more on the lighter comedic side. Is that correct, Scott? Yes. Yeah, All These Women came later. Oh, okay. That was okay. actually after even like Winter Light and The Silence. Okay, and well, yeah, but there was Lesson in Love. There, there was another film that Eva Dahlbeck was in, but I can't remember. Uh, Waiting, Waiting Women. Waiting Women, that's what it was. Okay, yeah, yeah, so I got the titles mixed up there. But I think Eva Dahlbeck's style was a little bit more towards the comic and as he dropped you know got into a little heavier weightier subject matter and, and maybe she just didn't have an interest in being in those types of movies i don't know but uh yeah i, I you know the music was 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 quite effective and and uh you know you, you get a little bit of that dreamy kind of late night short night uh you know atmosphere as as we get into a little bit more of this kind of you know dreamlike frenzy of, of characters if they've been up for a long time and they're going to be up through the night and and there's all these tensions boiling over so i think the music really reflects that quite nicely could be a lute scott don't know ah it does i, w- I could go with a lute yeah i'm never good at identifying musical instruments even when i was younger it's like is that a guitar maybe <laughs> i don't know uh could, could be a harp i'm not sure i need to listen to it again now that you we discussed it um, yeah, Eva Dahlbeck's last film with Bergman would be All These Women, in which she kind of brought, literally, I mean, the title is not lying. It's like all the women he'd worked with at that point kind of come aboard this kind of Fellini-esque uh, parade of sexuality that Yarl uh, uh, Cool is at the center of, and quite amusingly so. It's a, it's a very odd film, but I would recommend hardcore Bergman fans check it yeah. out. Or even That might have been, was that his first color film as well? I believe yeah. so, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's certainly uh, extremely colorful, probably to a fault. <laughs> um, but this film, in its own way, kind of has a colorful nature to it. I love that he even speaks in a musical number, kind of while uh, Eva Dahlbeck and Gunnar Bjornsson are uh, walking back to her apartment. She breaks out into a slight musical number, and it really adds this kind of buoyant feel to it that would be capitalized on later in the film. I wanted to specifically call that out. Thank you for yeah. reminding me. Yeah, that's it's so unexpected. Uh, and it works really well, and it, and it kind of proceeds or directly proceeds one of the funniest jokes in the film when when she says, "Watch out for that puddle." Um, oh yeah, I burst out laughing at that. <laughs> I completely forgot about that moment. It's so good, like that, and probably the the two times that the that the count says uh, the first time, "My wife may cheat on me, but if anyone touches my mistress, I become a tiger." And then at the <laughs> end, when he does the reverse, <laughs> it is actually. I mean, for everything we've said, it is. A funny film. Oh like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. A lot of humor. So many funny moments. But yeah, when that song happens, I was just like, "Wait, 
wait, what, what direction are we going here? Like, what, what is this going to be a musical? Because that would be amazing. And then, it, you know, that's the only one, but it was awesome. And then Gunnar Bjornstrand. to bring up well, the, the umbrellas of Sherborg really quick in this episode. Like, it's hey, awesome. so good. So good. There we go. I'll just bring it up there and, and leave it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just seeing Gunnar Bjornstrand taking a pratfall like that. I mean, that's not something you see. So well done. Yeah. So well done. Huh. Yeah. I want. I was also curious when the count uh, threatens him with the uh, sort of brags about his own duel experience. Uh, he lists all the different kinds of duels he's had, and one of them was poison. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it definitely made me think of uh, Princess Bride. Princess Bride, right? I'm like, yeah. did he had has he has he spent the last few years developing an immunity to iocane powder? Yeah, exactly. Like what? Because Russian roulette. Okay, there you go. But po- poison, like I, it's in one of these glasses. I guess I literally, I guess that's what he's done. He's uh, <laughs> he's a really great character. Better he's just building up the tension for poor Friedrich, who's sitting there gulping, not able to breathe. <laughs> yeah, he's just listing off every deadly thing he can think of. <laughs> he's got, I mean, he's got Friedrich's number through the whole film. He just, you know, every once in a while he's he's barely, you know, a little cut off guard, but for the most part, he's got he's got poor Friedrich there. <laughs> but the women have his. I mean, the yep. Criterion description makes it sound like all four women are in on this together, but it's really just. Uh, plan between uh what's her name desiree and uh charlotte Charlotte, yeah it's uh collaboration between the two of them and the fact that it works out well for the other two couples is just kind of like a happy accident and let's not forget i love desiree's mother either she's uh she's kind of a crucial player and you know she's she's the one who's kind of seen these shenanigans unfold for the previous couple generations (laughs) so she's like okay i think it's time for these youngsters uh from her perspective anyways youngsters to uh Kind of get their own little lessons in love. Well, and she well, gets the son that... drunk too. She gets... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> will, for me, the, she's one of the weaknesses, and it's probably just me. But whenever her, her rather long soliloquies kind of pop up, I drift away a little bit and am anxious for them to be over. So, to be honest, I'm not sure I've even ever been able to pay attention through the whole thing, which is really sad. And uh, I'm admitting it now for the first time. Um, but uh, I don't know, dude. She's She's definitely powerful, and I like that there's a woman like her, but I'm not sure it's executed in a way that works for me, or or I just haven't allowed it to yet. I mean, I love her first scene with uh, Eva Dahlbeck, where she has, like, the wittiest answer imaginable to almost everything, and kind of sets her up as a character willing to, you know, give uh, her daughter anything she wants, so long as it's amusing for her. She almost reaches the ensuing events like television, you know, like a live play that's come to her house. I also think that you get a real good sense of where Desiree gets her sort of spunk from because yes, her mom sure. is awesome. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I didn't find I'll, that to be true either. I, I'll I really try to her. pay it better attention. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just always get hungry at that part. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're talking about the the dinner scene, I definitely I the, the staging scene. there is kind of wonderful. I wonder if that was a common Swedish custom to sit with one person on one side of the table and everybody else on the other. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for an honored elder like that. You yeah. Know. I, I everyone also one with whoever's the most awkward. <laughs> absolutely. I also love the moment um, where the, where the, the young couple, the, the son and, and the wife are going to run away together. And that, that, that the, that the father happens to be walking by right then. And that he kind of slinks and just watches them and does not at any point. Cause I really expected him to pop out and give them his blessing, but he just kind of lets them go. And I thought that was 
uh, both interesting and more powerful than it would be if he had popped out and either given them his blessing or had something to say about it or mocked them or something. He just kind of says, you know, okay, I'm going to let them do what they're going to do. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's just it's just another reflection of how compromised Friedrich is. He's just kind of a man of inaction when it gets right down to it. You know, he's just you know he he can't make a fool of himself and chase after him, but he he can't really say anything. He just sort of lets him roll on by, and he sort of stuck with himself. Yeah, exactly. He's he's in that way. Maybe I feel connected to him as as well, Trevor, in the sort of action by inaction sort of. Taoist sort of nature in in a weird in a weird kind of way. Maybe that's a little bit overstating the case, but I do find his his uh, willingness to sort of let events play out in front of him uh, familiar and and yeah. Well, there's a certain wisdom and ambivalence as well. You know, I mean, not overreacting, just kind of charting that middle way. <laughs> but you sometimes <laughs> look a little weak and ineffectual because you just sort of allow allow things to happen without you know, boldly asserting yourself or, uh, or flailing against the seemingly inevitable. Are you talking well, about me again? <laughs> <laughs> well, and so much of that country retreat is about his kind of humbling and, you know, recognizing that he's not as, uh, the master of his domain, so to speak, as, uh, he seems to put himself out to be, you know, even within his household, the fact that he'd kind of lorded this relationship over his son, he doesn't even have that anymore. And so by the time you get to the Russian roulette scene, even though he's understandably quite nervous about the proceedings, you can kind of see why he's not, you know, running away or anything. Yeah. And he winds up with a soot all over his face. <laughs> yes, very amusingly so. <laughs> uh, and then I love that she still won't tell him why she named her son Frederick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He really never gets anything he expects or really necessarily wants, but, you know, maybe he gets what he wants, but not not in an expected way, perhaps. And isn't that so much of this film? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think uh, Heinrich wanted to uh, finally fall in love with Anne by uh, not killing himself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, and that that moment too. Again, you know, you've got a you've got a suicide attempt, which leads to one of the best sight gags in the entire film. You know, yeah. <laughs> when Heinrich, uh, you know, the the little cord snaps and he hits the button that opens up the magic bed, and the little angel tooting his horn. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's it, you know, you just sort of see it for what it is, but you just sort of let the let the symbolism, if you will, sort of sink in from where they, where his life was at, a, at one moment and how radically everything turned around. Yeah, it's Chekhov's magic bed, of course. It's introduced in one scene. You know it's going to come back. Yeah, yeah. It was the most telegraphed thing in the, in the film. I was like, oh, I bet they're going to use that later. Yeah, you, know. you have a character literally say, hey, look at this. <laughs> But they, you know, at least in that way, I was happy that it was uh, the way that it happened. Although the minute he got up on that thing, I'm like, oh, okay, so how are they going to get him to that button? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, why choose this room? Yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, again, just basing that kind of a prop gag on a suicide attempt. You oh, know? yeah, for sure. It's an <laughs> unexpected Bergman. way in. Very Bergman. <laughs> All those classic suicide gags. He just couldn't help himself. <laughs> well, an obsession with questions of death, perhaps, you know. There you go. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I, I mentioned the cinematography of Gunnar Fischer in passing, and I forgot to relay this quote from Bergman, uh, where he explicitly wanted even the production design for there to be nothing black in the film at all, except for this young, clean-living man, which is Heinrich, uh, wandering through the picture like a public catastrophe, which is a great way to put it, and which uh, kind of highlights just how gorgeous this film is, how much white kind of comes booming off the screen. And I think that really is uh, handled very well in Criterion's transfer of the film, you know. Uh, all I think they've really done exceptionally well by Bergman's films on Blu-ray in general, but this, this film, in part because it's there's so little black in the frame and there's uh, just kind of this obvious beauty to it, it really stands out amongst all of those. Well, and I oh, guess yeah. I should thank you and David for making me finally take the plunge and buying the Blu-ray uh, after we did the Seventh Sill episode because... I had the original, like that that box set, the Ingmar Bergman for Masterworks, which had the old DVD in it, and yeah, it it was beautiful to watch it on Blu-ray. It just it, it it's so much brighter than than I had on the DVD, and just it just looked tremendous. So I I recommend everyone else who maybe just saying, oh, the DVD is fine, to uh, give it a shot because it it really does uh, it, it shines. Yeah, the supplement, uh, it's, it's not really loaded with a lot of extra goodies, but the supplement, uh, which is the conversation with Peter Cowie and uh, who's the other guy there? Uh, Jorn Donner. They, they kind of bring that to the surface because, yeah, I, I'm just sitting here watching, oh, yeah, this is a really gorgeous movie. But when you see, uh, as, as they kind of point out, just how how uh, precise and, and how excellent the the lighting effects are some of those dinner scenes where there's a there is kind of a dark background but everything just pops off the table all the crystal all the you know all the 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 silverware and the candelabra and all the ornateness of of their kind of big dinner scene yeah just you know you sort of think yeah that that really took some expertise to to bring those bring those textures out to the surface and you're right the the blu-ray really does show it off so it's a most excellent and worthy upgrade. Well, David, is there anything we didn't get to in the film? Anything left you wanted to talk about? No, no. I mean, I think I think this is a film that breezes along. Uh, you mentioned, Scott, that this is one of Bergman's longer films of the era. But um, to me, it's I think the brevity and, and the way that it does just kind of, you know, move from one what becomes kind of in your mind, one classic sequence after another makes it eminently rewatchable. I think in my Criterion Reflections essay, I kind of compared it to the importance of being earnest, which we talked about you know several months ago as a film I can just watch over and over again because there's just so many lines that I just chuckle at just the you know the the exchange of of wit and the and the truthfulness of these humorous observations just about you know relationships between the sexes and just you know matters of the heart in general so it's it's entertaining but it's got that little kind of philosophical depth and richness to it that uh, makes it definitely one of those films that uh, even though I've watched it several times and now I've podcasted about it, uh, I'm not going to stop watching it. This will be in rotation from time to time uh, in the years going forward. Uh, Trevor, yourself, anything we didn't get to? Well, I just wanted to um, – you, you said that this was one of the first Bergman films that you watched, if not – was it the first? It was the first. I, I'm curious because um, – to talk about that just a little bit because it's one that I wish more people – did watch early when they're getting to know Bergman, particularly people who aren't getting on with him, who are like, oh, he's too dour or all that kind of stuff. I wish they would step back. And, and I was interested that um, that for you, it's something that's kind of grown. I wonder if uh, maybe I'm kind of wrong in that. And this is 
maybe even a little better if you have gotten to know the Dower Bergman and can step back and see can see this. You know, it's just an interesting thing. I don't know if we have a lot to say on it, but I guess watch it whenever you get to it, but, but watch it. <laughs> you know, don't, yeah. don't don't pass it up because um, and, and uh, that goes with all the three films that we talked about. You know, we, we mentioned before that a lot of people start with the seventh seal and move forward as if that's when Bergman really started making movies that were worth watching, which just isn't the case. I mean, he certainly made masterpiece after masterpiece um, at that time and after. Um, but these films are so worthwhile and so... Uh, you know, rich, even if they were the only thing that he made, I think they would, they would stand out. You know, they certainly stand out more because they're, they've got a nice, uh, uh, you know, all the rest of his, his career is context, but, uh, but they would be worthwhile even without uh, all the masterpieces. But like David said earlier, thank goodness this one helped him make those. Uh, but, but yeah, so I guess maybe in the end, just to make sure you don't pass it by, you know, if, if this is something that you're, you're not getting on with Bergman or you haven't gotten to this one yet. I, I, I think most people should, uh, should finally settle down and, and, and give it a whirl, uh, because it really is delightful. It, it's, it's got all the darkness, but, um, but that almost makes it even more delightful, I guess, you know, it's not fluffy. It's, uh, it, it's fully realized and rich and, and just, uh, a, a lot of fun and, um, uh, you know, a little bit too fun for that critic in the in Sweden, <laughs> but uh, but just uh, just my cup of tea for sure. Yeah, no, I will say that watching it early on definitely helped me see the rest of the comedy in uh, Bergman's films, and the other ones I watched after this were Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries, uh, which are you know they're very serious films in their own way, but they certainly have their comedic moments. And by not only knowing Bergman through kind of the reputation that he accumulated later, I, I think I was a little more open to the more entertaining aspects of those films, which is why I'm always quick to ex- uh, accentuate them to new viewers. I think Bergman is forever underrated as a entertainer, um, but uh, this film definitely highlights it. I'd be curious t- about your, the entertaining moments in my first Bergman, uh, Winter Light. Did, did, you, did you catch any in that one? <laughs> uh, perhaps not. <laughs> I'll watch it watching for it this time. <laughs> uh, Ark, anything we didn't get to? Uh, yeah, just one thing, uh, and it's another one where I'm not sure, maybe I'm on an island here, I don't know, we'll see, but um, I did find a, a, a lot of similarities between this film and the drier film Day of Wrath. Uh, obviously, that's not really a comedy, but uh, similar sort of, you know, the, the, the son and the, the young wife obviously is a, a direct parallel and, and, and things like that, but there was just kind of a similar vibe in their relationship and just some of the stuff, some of the spunkiness of the the ladies and, and sort of that woman. And I just want to say that if, if you've seen this one and not that one and you enjoy this one, I mean, that one, like I said, not really a comedy, but an incredible film that I think more people should see. So if you enjoyed this one, I just want to say maybe you'd probably enjoy that one as well. Hey, can I throw in good, one other little, you know, I want to throw in one other little uh, uh, recommendation here. And this is a shout out to, uh, I think a mutual friend of all of ours, Michael Hutchins, who's pretty active in the Criterion uh, Completion and, and other groups on Facebook. Uh, he, he wanted me to throw out a little mention of Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler's stage musical adaptation of this story, A Little Night Music, which I have to confess I've not seen that. But uh, his recommendation, I've read that kind of uh, reference in other reviews as well. Has anybody else seen that particular film uh, or, or stage production of A Little Night Music? 
I think I have actually okay. a long, long time ago, yeah. and I, I, I did enjoy it. So, so and then I, of course Woody Allen's Midsummer Midsummer's Night Sex Comedy, which is almost a, a tribute to Bergman, as many of Woody Allen's films of that era were. Uh, so there are some, you know, some influences, I guess, that the Smiles of a Summer Night has had beyond uh, salvaging Bergman's career. But just wanted to give a, Michael <laughs> a chance to weigh in here since he had messaged me about that. Yeah, I've long wanted to see that. I'm not the biggest Sondheim fan, but, uh, you know, I, I love me a good country estate uh, sex farce. And uh, as much as this film is definitely inspired directly, I think, in those two cases that you mentioned, uh, it was, I think, working in its own kind of uh, genre, even at its time. Uh, Rules of the Game, of course, you know, got their decades ahead of it. And uh, so many other films, this was kind of a, a mode for a while there. Day of Wrath made in Sweden, by the way. Just saying. <laughs> Direct connection there. Yeah, I haven't seen that film in so long that I can't remember those connections that you brought up. But I did recently buy that Blu-ray set that the BFI put out. So oh, lucky you. Be getting to it sooner. Yeah, or later. that's an intriguing uh, suggestion there, Arik. I think I will, uh, you know, give Day of Wrath a spin in my old school Criterion DVD version. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I watch. Some days they'll well. upgrade that. I one would hope. Yeah. Um, well, if that's all, thank you guys for joining me for this episode and for this whole series. I've really enjoyed going back through these films and chatting about them with you guys. You brought up so many angles that I hadn't considered before and so many new ways of appreciating a director that I, you know, can seem to never get to the bottom of and who I constantly amazed by and constantly, uh, thrilled to revisit his films. So it's been a, a delightful summer, guys. Uh, thank you. But like all good things come to an end, summer's almost <laughs> over. <laughs> we'll just have to get back to all those other trash films in the Criterion Collection uh, after this. Yeah. Are, are we doing Autumn Sonata next? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> Somebody did actually, uh, this isn't just me uh, uh, posturing here. Somebody did direct the request that we one day do the uh, other film trilogy by Ingeborg Bergman, the one more uh, formally anointed in the Criterion oh, Collection. Yeah. So maybe not right away, but some winter we'll have to get to that. Uh, it'd be a lot of fun. Give us a little time to breathe and definitely so yeah i'm all up for it so you let let us know scott we'll be there will do uh i'm not sure what's coming up next but uh i, th- I think it'll have to be a, a non-scott pick since i kind of kicked this one off and i feel bad for dominating everyone's summer but uh oh. so I'll, I'll give you guys an opportunity well, to pick the next few if this is what you come up with <laughs> dominate me <laughs> i never thought i'd hear you say those words david the day has finally come <laughs> um all right well thanks again everybody uh and have a good rest of your summer. Have a good Labor Day. And uh, a great autumn with a smile just as summer has left you. Uh, good night. Boom! How they cheer and how they smile As we go galloping down the aisle It's divine, dear. It's divine, dear. It's divine, divine. It's the victory. It's develop. It's divina. It's the voice. It's the lovely. So we take a few hours off to eat wedding cake. It's delightful. It's delicious. It's the lovely. It feels so fine to be a bride. And how's the groom? Why he's slightly fried. It's delightful. It's delicious. It's the lovely. To the pop of champagne. Up we hop. In our plush little plane Till a bright light through the darkness Cozily falls Niagara Falls All's well, my love Our day's complete 
what a beautiful bridal suite is dreaming. It's the Rousey, it's the Reverie, it's the Rhapsody, it's the Regal, it's the Royal, it's the Ritz, it's the Lovely. 